Uh, really. All right, good morning, Redstone Church. Go ahead and make your way back to your seat. Grab your uh, Bible and remain standing for the authority of God's Word. If you got your Bible, shake it to me, show it to me. Who's got your Bible? The real one. All right, no shame here. I just want to see after eight weeks if there's more Bibles in here than there were in June. All right, so this is First Peter chapter 1, 22 and following. This is God's Word. Having purified your souls by your obedience uh, to the truth for the sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and its glory like the flowers of the field or grass. The grass withers, and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And the word is the good news that was preached to you. Amen? Amen. So you may be seated. Now we say this verse back to one another every single week. And you're wondering, where did we get this? Well, 1 Peter 1 tells us. So we stand for the authority of scripture and that's a good thing. But we also need to remind ourselves on a weekly basis how this book has shaped our lives. Behind you is a graphic. It's not a very good one, but it just says the Bible. So for eight weeks, we are, as a congregation, we're going to come together and we're going to talk about the book that we hold. Last week, we talked about authority. And then as the summer progresses, we will just continue to hammer the idea of what this book is and how it should shape our lives. So there's a debate with anthropologists out there. You may or may not know of this debate. I certainly didn't. didn't. And they're asking the question, are we experiencing the fourth turn, T-U-R-N? Are we experiencing the fourth turn? And I didn't know this, but all cycles of human history and culture, they go through waves of different kind of iterations of what is happening. And oftentimes there's atrophy among us as a society or as a people group. And so this is just an adage, right? But that hard seasons make good people. That it's actually the hard seasons of life that make the goodness out of people. And then good people actually produce good times. So hard times produces good people. Good people produces good times, but good times produce Soft people and soft people produce hard times. And there is a cyclical nature to this, but also a cultural atrophy that we go in these seasons. So are we experiencing this fourth turn, this idea that we are potentially soft people and we are therefore experiencing hard times. Now, you didn't show up this morning to get a history lesson. I get that. However, the question is that the world, you need to understand the world is built one way and simply not to last. Is there anything that will last forever? Or, if the, or will the, law of, the second law of thermodynamics always win? that things will always devolve. C.S. Lewis tells us this. He says, if I find in myself desires which nothing in this world 
Nothing in this world can satisfy. The only logical explanation is that I was made for another world. Is there anything that will last? Is there anything that is forever? Or does everything fade and everything wither? When we're experiencing spring and it's wonderful and good, but you look outside and the dogwood blooms are gone. Even East Tennessee and the beautiful rhododendron, the, blo- the blossoms and the blooms, they're gone. Sure, it's hydrangea season and we're all excited about hydrangea season, right? But soon it will both last. And then also I was expecting just a, just a touch more. Y'all, I mean, y'all are in the South now, all right? This is the flower of the South. This is hydrangea season. Uh, we're coming up on it. And then, I mean, it's just, it's wonderful. But those flowers will fade. Is there anything that will last? So Protestants, and that's who we are, Protestants believe that the Bible is sufficient. All right, that's the word for the day is that it is sufficient. And it's sufficient for all matters of of faith and practice. This idea of where do the things that you believe come from or how do you behave, where does it come from? It comes from this idea that the Bible is not just an authority figure over your life, but it actually breathes into your life in some way. So your authority gives you grounding or gives you a lordship and those are wonderful and good. But the brother or the sister, the sibling to authority is this idea of sufficiency because sufficiency says that things actually come back into life and culture and behavior change and this reality of an ethos actually happens and that is because of this idea of sufficiency. Sufficiency is that in all matters of faith and practice, Get those two words, faith and practice. The Bible is the only source of authority for the Christian's belief and behavior. Those are the two B's that I want you to walk away for. What do I believe? And more importantly, where do those beliefs come from? How do I behave? And where do those behaviors come from? As Protestants, right, we believe that all of those things are grounded back into the Bible. We keep saying Protestants because there is another tradition out there, other traditions that link their belief system and the behaviors outside of the scriptures. You see, we have the word of God and it's quite the pleasure. The question for us this morning is there, is there any other source any other addition that we need to be adequate to live this life? Or the question is, is the scriptures sufficient? Are the scriptures enough? Are they adequate? Will they do? Hopefully in the next 25 minutes or so, you will walk out of here and you'll go, yes, they are sufficient. And so is the Bible enough? Another word for sufficiency is enough. Is the Bible enough for us? First and foremost, let's just pause that we, are, we own a Bible, right? You have a Bible app or you own a Bible. So the very point of the actual written word is that it is there in your lap in some way. So it's been given to us in some way. So this great revelation by God himself has been given and we should thank God for those things. But it's not enough just to own. It's not enough just to collect dust and to bring out every week, right? Psalm 119 starts out with this statement. 
How am I supposed to walk? How should we walk? And the question for us is, I don't know. How should we walk? How should I behave? Do you know what the answer is? Blamelessly. Now in the history of all humanity, I don't know what you would have filled in that blank with, but we would have not put in blameless as the very attribute of our walking because everything that we see around us is one big mistake or a problem that needs to be solved. And so the idea that we actually have something that cuts against the grain of our natural tendency is also a proof that it's there for us. We have a written word that's simple and true. We have commands that we get to follow. And so the idea of sufficiency or that it's enough is there's also an idea of simplicity about it. We have, don't have to be creative or ingenuity. We don't have to have ingenuity but we have the word, it's rooted, it has foundations, it's written down, it can't be erased, it's direct, it's objective. You and I, we're full of subjectivity, what I think or what I feel or the types of circumstances around us. Isn't it nice that we have something that will ground us? That is efficiency. It is all very authoritative. It is there for you and I, not just to read, not just to believe, but also for behavior. In my research this this week, I didn't know this fact, that Jesus Christ comes along and and he's talking about the law. And in two different places, he uses the word law as he's quoting a psalm. Now we talked last week that like there were different genres of the scriptures, right? There's, there's poetic structures, there's didactic, there's history and all of these genres. But um, law was different than poetry. But Jesus is actually using the word law as he's quoting poetry. So did Jesus get it wrong? No. He's just seeing that the completion or the complete aspect of all of the scriptures are these mandates or are these statutes or these precepts, are these laws for you and I to believe or not to believe. That's the culture that he wants us to believe in is that this is what I have done. I've come to fulfill the law. Do you remember the Sermon on the Mount? And he tells us that he's come to fulfill the law. But then he says, I haven't come to loosen anything, not even a jot or a tittle. Now you and I, we're not familiar with these words, jots and tittles, and that's okay, right? But it's in the scriptures. And so we need to have at least some kind of context. The jot, the jot is the 10th letter of the Hebrew alphabet. Now it's the smallest, right? It's a little like teal sized, right? It's a little on the small side, little on the structure, you know, but it's not insignificant. It's just there. It's small. It's like David, like the youngest brother. He's always kicked to the side. So that's what the jot is, the smallest letter of the Hebrew alphabet. The tittle though is a little bit like a seraph, right? You've got seraph and sans serif in today's script. And serif just means a little whoop-de-doo. Right? Or a little addition, a little bit of like cursive, right? And so when Jesus says, I've come to fulfill the law, right, we get that. But then he says, I haven't come to loosen any of it, not even a jot or a tittle. This is what he means. The very smallest of all of the Hebrew alphabet. 
and you see you have Resh on the left and then you've got Dalit on the right. Now Dalit has just a little bit on the far right hand side. That little piece, that little extra piece of ink, that is a tittle. And he says, I haven't come just for every letter of the law, but every notation of the law. I've come to fulfill all of it. And so what we have at our disposal is this idea that Jesus Christ has given us this, not only just to believe, but also to live it out in a real and a passionate way. This is how seriously he took the scriptures. This is how seriously he took to fulfilling these scriptures. Have they made it into your life? Have the scriptures made it into your heart? Are the scriptures making a difference in what you believe and how you behave? You have an avalanche of culture out there that is pushing against you on a daily basis. What will give you the strength? What will give you the courage to stand up and say, this is what I believe and this is how I behave. David Scanlon has a uh, backyard um, you know, party and he invites his friends. Does that, is David Scanlon a good guy? Probably. Is he a good neighbor? Yeah. But where did he get the idea to invite his neighbors and his friends to his backyard to potentially build relationships, to potentially share the gospel? Was he that creative and has that much ingenuity? Or is he living out a command of the scriptures? If we look at our lives and we ask the question, why? Why did I do that? Why did I not do that? Why do I believe this? Why do I not believe that? It cannot be subjective to your feelings, opinions, or even circumstances. It must be grounded in the word. And that's why we have to search them out. That's why we have to see that this thing that is going to last forever, this good news, that it needs to be, you need to be on the search for these things. This doctrine means that there is things that are searchable in this book. How are you to know about evangelism? Go to the scriptures. How do you, how do you know about marriage? You go to the scriptures. How do you know about envy or jealousy? You go to the scriptures. How do you define love? You should go to the scriptures. And so this confidence, right? This objective truth that is written down for us also makes it somewhat simple for us. Now it's not easy to live, but it makes it simple to even understand that these words that are given to us can be searchable, objective in reality. While in seminary, um, Tim, I was hearing a lecture from Tim Keller and Tim Keller was telling a story about his seminary professor. So as a seminarian thinking about seminary professors, I was very inclined and he said it this way. So we're in the, at the end of class and the professor says, here's what I want you to do and writes just this one very simple passage on the board. He says, you've got 30 minutes and I want you to write 50 things from this one passage alone. 50 truths 
50 insights on this one passage. Ready, set, go. Boom. And so five minutes passed, and it was a pretty simple passage like um, any of them. And after five minutes, he was like, I think I've got it all. And then 10 minutes passed. You're like, well, there's some things. And then 20 minutes passed and then 30 minutes passed. And sure enough, he was able to come up with 50 unique things about one tiny little piece of scripture. And he was overwhelmed at a page full of 50 truths about God's truth. But this is where it gets interesting. Then the second question came. Now I want you to go back and read those 50. And I want you to circle the most impactful insight of your 50. Which insight has a chance of changing your life? And student after student after student read, circle, da, 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 da. Third question. When in the exercise did you come up with that insight? And two thirds of the class raised their hands on the very end of the process. It wasn't the first five minutes, the first 10 minutes. It was minute 22 or 23 or 24 when the scriptures were marinating in his heart and life. I've taught this exercise to interns for many, many years and it works. That when you search the scriptures, when you slow down, his truths are unsearchable and wonderful and good. They are sufficient. Now, maybe you've gotten bored with the Bible. Maybe it's just too complex or you don't understand. Maybe it's because you haven't sat long enough in these scriptures. 10 years ago, almost to the day we, we planted Redstone Church, the season that preceded planting, I had a season of doubt and even confusion. You see, the way that the structure works is that you need an outside board to tell you whether you're ready to, to, to launch, you're ready to plant. And that outside board said, no, you're not ready. Well, everything in my heart and life said, I'm, I'm ready to go. We are ready to go. The core team was ready to go, but someone pushed pause and that bothered me. And so I took two weeks off, didn't clock in once. It was right before Christmas. And guess what I did every single morning? a blank sheet of paper, turn landscape. And out of the overflow of my heart, I just wrote a simple passage of scripture and I didn't get up until there were 50 insights. And as the Puritans would say, my heart began to be warmed by the presence of Christ inside the scriptures. These scriptures truly are sufficient for all things. So, but what do we do with extra biblical material, right? You know, the stuff that's beyond the Bible. Like, aren't they good? Like there is, and so some of you who know your Bible, there's a little bit of a red flag because there is a passage toward the end of the scriptures that says, anybody who adds to this, like watch out, brother, right? So just, that was my interpretation. But it says, if you add anything to it, I think you will be judged and you're gonna be burned. So this is an interesting question. But the point is, is that I don't know how to fix Oliver's dirt bike. Where do I get that information? I don't know the rules of pickleball. How do I understand that? IRS code, I don't know if any of you work for the IRS, right? So no digs here, but I don't understand this language. How do I understand this? So are there any extra biblical 
ideas out there that actually breathe into our lives. And that's just the practical. What's to say about old sermons or old books that are your favorite? What about church fathers like Augustine, right? Who's writing the city of God and changed the entire trajectory of the world. What do we do with these pieces of material? Do we all go out and we start burning our books? Or is there something else here? That's where a guy named Matthew Barrett, he comes in to help us with this idea of extra biblical sources. And he gives us two words that are really helpful. He says these extra biblical resources, they can be ministerial by nature, meaning they they can minister to your heart and your mind. They can help shape and form. I did a lot of research to get to these words and that's not a bad thing. However, they will never be what he says, magisterial, kingly, authority. They will always be an addendum or an asterisk. And so, yes, they are good and yes, they shape, but they will never own this idea that they are the final word for the Christian. And that's why the reformers in the, in the 15th century, that's why the reformers had the five solas. And one of those solas was sola scriptura, right? Or in the scriptures alone. Because the history of our church is that the Catholic church, that they loved the scriptures and they meditated on the scriptures, but then they added tradition to help us understand life and liberty. And then the church began to equate certain writings with the scriptures. The reformer said, no more. It's only about the Bible and no more. And there was a great schism in the church. And so the reason that we're sitting here today and not at Catholic Mass was over the sufficiency of scriptures. There were some men and women, I'm sure, that said what is written in the scriptures are all that we need to understand what we believe and how we behave. And so go ahead and read those things. That's fine, but just know where they stand. They have to be in the category of ministerial or helpful. They will never be equated with scriptures. That is the only thing. The scriptures themselves, that's where the power of God is. The other thing that the Protestants would fight against is the language that it was written in. There's not too many of you in here that read fluent Greek or Hebrew much less be able to interpret those things. I think there's maybe even two or three of us that can even, you know, get lost in the weeds. So the scripture or the reformer said, no, every common man needs to be able to read it on their own terms. The papacy would speak and understand everything in Latin. And so if you walked into mass and you didn't understand Latin, it was for them, it wasn't for you. They started to tear away this idea that the scripture is meant for the priesthood of the believer, that we all need to have it. And so for 2,000 years now, we've been looking at this ancient document and wondering how does it make an impact on our lives? There's been some who've said the reason it makes the difference in your life is because these are the very words of God and God alone. And they will give their entire life to make sure that you have it at your disposal. And so that there's 
councils of people looking over old texts, trying to understand what they mean so that you can understand the difference between a noun and a verb. Two of such people are David and Stacy Hare. These are friends of mine from seminary. They are the most precious people. As far as personality goes, they would be all of our best friends. More than that though, they are probably two of the sharpest people I met at seminary. Like they're smart and then there's uber smart. Well, it's not just one of them. Both of them are on a different spectrum altogether. They could have done anything with their life and been successful at anything. Plant them anywhere in the world and they would just blossom and grow. They're just those kinds of people. Because they were uber smart, right? And they had a, a, a fight in their heart over whether the word of God is authority or not. They found themselves in Cameroon in a little place that did not have access to the scriptures in the local language. And so they went to translating. And they've committed to give their entire life to this one language, to this one tribe, to make sure that at the end of their life, that that tribe has the scriptures in their language. What would motivate people to do such a thing as that? To give up life and liberty, to forsake the world because the scriptures are that important. So I don't know sure what your journal entries look like, but this is what their journal entries look like. Day in and day out month in and month out, year in and year out, doing everything in their power to understand culture and understand language in order to understand the original, to be able to give just a glimmer, a glimpse and a hope of God's word to these people so that they can live life to the full, not live life naturally and easily, but as Christ has breathed it out for us over and over and over again. Why? Because in the beginning was the word and the word was God and the word was with God and the word became flesh and he dwelt among us. And so what do we see in our scriptures here? In 1 Peter and Ezekiel and Amos and Revelation, what do we see? We see the person and work of Jesus and Jesus alone. Every time we pick up these scriptures is to fall in love and to be more devoted to Jesus. It's not to get our lives right. It's not even to be good people. It's to see the very definition of life is in the person of Jesus and we get to emulate that over and over and over again. Jesus, his word made flesh. But he, in that flesh, he had to obey and fulfill the law. He had to obey and fulfill the word of God, every jot, every tittle. But there's at least one time where he was fighting mad and didn't understand. And he says, Lord, Father, is there any way that you can take this cup from me? Anyway, will you make it go away? Will you erase it? And then what does he say? It's not my will, but it's your will. And where do we find the Father's will? Written in stone and written in the scriptures, not written in circumstance. 
too many of you are living your life bending and waving according to circumstance, not by the word of God alone. How are the scriptures fulfilled? In Jesus and Jesus alone. At the end of our story, there's this book called Revelation. And Revelation is beyond wild, right? Just for a good time, just read it. Shake your head. In the 19th chapter, there's one of those moments. So there's this one, he, whoever he is, and he's clothed with a robe dipped in blood. Right. Any comics out there, just you know, draw that. That's amazing. And his name is called what? The Word of God. The Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the one who is going to fulfill it all. This is Jesus Christ who takes on the name, the Word of God over and over and over. The cup did not pass from him. Instead, he was obedient even to death, death on a cross. He didn't allow the circumstances or feelings to sway him anyway. The scriptures were sufficient for all things. So very practically, what do we do with a message like this? Right, that's a lot, that's heavy. But again, these two brothers, right? These two siblings, authority and sufficiency, they go together. This idea that the authority is that it reigns, it rules, there's a Lord over our life and it is it. The scriptures are where we find who God is. But then this idea of how should we believe? More importantly, how should we behave? How do we structure our lives? That's where sufficiency comes in, that it is enough to know all that we need to know about God and everything that we need to do on how do we believe. So here are these two questions for you today and maybe for your discussion over lunch. It's pretty simple, but are you open uh, to the possibility that the Bible may challenge your current beliefs and practices? Right, whatever, wherever you are, right, you look at the world, you look at the things that you're potentially make you a little uneasy. You look at the scriptures and go, that makes me uncomfortable. I don't want to do it that way. Are you open to bending your will, your personal preference to the word of God? And secondly is in a world full of podcasts and a full of sermons and great Christian literature, not dogging at all, right? But if they're not the scriptures, how much, how much extra emphasis have you placed in, in extra biblical material? More importantly, have you elevated that material over your time and energy with the Lord? How many of you need to find a passage, blank sheet of paper, turn landscape, and just dwell with the Lord? The word is, has authority. And the Lord and the word is sufficient. Amen. All right, let's pray. And so Lord, we are so very grateful for that day and that night of obedience when you were begging the Lord, begging the Father for another way. So King Jesus, thank you for your obedience. Thank you that even though you didn't want the cup of wrath, you didn't want the cup of separation. You didn't want to bear sin, which you had no uh, experience with. And yet you were obedient to that. Lord, I pray for a gospel-shaped 
people, a people who are shaped by the gospel, by the word, that we would fall in line more with your words and understanding that all scriptures are breathed out by God, seeing that these are the very life for us. And so Lord, I pray now, even now as we sit, God, that we will wrestle with these terms, that we will wrestle with ourselves, like what should we do with this word? And so how many of you have grown maybe just a little bit lacks in the importance of the scriptures in your life? Tell it to him this morning. How many of you have seen the scriptures as outdated and needs to truly become, you know, swept up in the dustpan of history? That it's just an old ancient doctrine that should have no impact on your life. If you've been convinced that, no, this is the very words of God, I pray that you would find in your heart and your mind a place of repentance to come back to the sufficiency of scripture. So King Jesus, as we approach the table, help us to do that in humility. Help us to do that out of obedience. And it's in your name we pray, amen. So there's two tables in the back and two tables in the front. These are the Lord's table in which he encourages brothers and sisters in Christ Jesus for 2000 years to partake in this meal together. You came in in family units. Well, around the table, he's defined a brand new family for us. And we are shaped by the word. This morning, if you find yourself in alignment with the scriptures, wanting to follow Jesus, who is the word, just know that these tables are open for you. And knowing that if you take this table, you know, for somebody outside of your family unit, that's all right. We're all brothers and sisters in Christ Jesus. So go ahead and stand and know that these tables are open for communion.